Romans chapter 8 and verse 18. Romans chapter 8 and verse 18. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. The sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Now this part of the epistle to the Romans is all about the indwelling Holy Spirit. Believers in Christ possess the Spirit as a foretaste of the glory to come. So the main design of this passage is to show the sustaining power of the Holy Spirit in the midst of trials and by the prospect of future deliverance and inheritance of the sons of God. And so we are maintained by the Spirit through our trials, looking at the future glory which is to come. The Holy Spirit tells us that right now we are the sons of God. Yet, at present, we are in a hostile world. We are suffering for Christ's sake. Here in this verse 18, this present suffering and our future eternal glory are compared as if weights on a pair of scales. Now on the one side we have the hostility of the world and persecutions for Christ's sake. They are momentary and light compared to the great weight of glory that awaits the believer for all eternity. There is a change coming which will lift us out of this world into a better one. God's great salvation is in order to bring many sons to glory. We are going to glory But note in this verse 18 how that glory will also be manifested in us. So we are going to be the vehicles of God's glory. Now very relevant to what is being said here uh, is 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 42 and following where Paul describes the resurrection. Paul says, So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption, it is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonour, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. And then further on in that chapter, verse 51, Paul says, We shall not all sleep, 
but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. The glory which shall be revealed in us. Now this prospect of future glory should encourage us in our fight against sin and Satan and the world right now. The Apostle John also refers to the glorious future of the sons of God. 1 John 3 verse 2. 1 John 3 2. He says, Beloved, now are we the sons of God. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So the glory which shall be revealed in us is our being Christ-like. That is our glory, to be like Christ. The contrast between present sufferings and future glory is brought out in the letter to the Hebrews, where the Hebrew Christians were being exhorted to persevere in the midst of persecution. Hebrews 10, verse 34, Hebrews 10, verse 34, we are told that the Hebrews took joyfully the spoiling of their goods. And the author is addressing them personally. Knowing in yourselves that ye have in heaven a better and an enduring substance. Cast not away therefore your confidence which hath great recompense of reward. And so the Hebrew Christians were willing to be thrown out of their jobs for being faithful to Christ. They were willing to lose their sources of income to be faithful to Christ. And we are now moving into a stage in the modern Western world where that is an issue that Christians are going to have to increasingly consider. You may have seen last week the case of the Christian magistrate, Richard Page. The appeal court has rejected his claim so far as going to the Supreme Court. But, but he has been denied important employment roles simply because he believes children are better brought up by a mother and a father. But the state, the powers that be, say, well, you can't hold positions of authority in this country if you believe something like that. That children fare better being brought up by a mother and a father. In other words, God's plan. But in modern Britain, if you believe it, you can't be a magistrate. 
That's the kind of world we are now in. Now, these persecuted Hebrews are being told that if they remain faithful, their future reward will far outweigh their present trials. And they possess the indwelling Holy Spirit as the earnest or first instalment of this future glory. Now, Paul says in verse 19 here, for the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. The earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. Now, it's crucial here that we focus upon the word creature uh, because it again appears in verses 20 and 21 uh, and in verse 22 uh, the same Greek word is translated as creation. Now a very respectable viewpoint is that Paul by creature or creation in these verses is not referring to human beings but to the natural and inanimate world namely the earth itself and all the physical elements which make up the earth. However, the context established by verse 18 is not the natural world, but the believer himself who suffers in this fallen world, but who is anticipating his future glory. So verse 19 is referring to the believer who is a mere creature, but he is anticipating future glory. He is anticipating the manifestation of the sons of God. Trees, rocks, rivers and oceans are not earnestly expecting the day when they shall be manifested to all the world as the sons of God. It is clearly only the believer in Christ who has such a privilege. So the word creature here in verse 19 refers to saved believers in their capacity as frail mortal creatures. The word creature refers to the Christian as renewed by the Holy Spirit but still subjected to a state of trial and vanity, this side of glory. Now, yes, as Christians, we are redeemed from the consequences of the fall and of our sin. But until we reach heaven, we continue to live in a fallen world. This is something that our society today desperately needs to understand. We live in a fallen world. And we're never going to be able to create a perfect world this side of heaven. We're never going to be able to create a world with no viruses. It's impossible because God has decreed otherwise. In this world, 
Christians and non-Christians suffer from pain and sicknesses and we all live in dying bodies. That is what it means to live in a fallen world. And for the Christian, we are also in a constant battle with the world, the flesh, and the devil. Now, we are longing for the day when Christ shall return. And then we shall be manifested to all the world in our exalted status as the redeemed sons of God, as opposed to our present despised status. So as long as we live on this earth, we have a mere creature status along with all non-believers. But unlike non-believers, we also have a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. We have a hope of that which is far better than this world. That's what this verse 19 is all about. So the word creature in verse 19 and then in verse 20 and 21 and then the word creation in verse 22 signifies every human being the whole mass of fallen mankind. But the emphasis may be on the believer or on the mass of non-believers, depending on the context of each individual verse. Now here in verse 19, the emphasis is on the mere creature who has nevertheless been saved through faith in Christ. He now earnestly awaits the time when he shall be manifested as a son of God. He now possesses through the Holy Spirit a foretaste of future glory. He has an earnest expectation of that glory. He has a deep longing for the coming time at Christ's return when his true status will be revealed to all the world. We believers shall be one day manifested to the world as clothed in glory. And so that world out there which despises us and wants nothing to do with us will have to acknowledge that we are the sons of God and they are not. we shall be publicly vindicated by the Lord Jesus Christ as he comes in judgment against the unbelieving world. So this verse 19 is describing the Christian's great hope. Though a mere creature, he who trusts in Christ is going to appear in all the glory of an adopted Son of God. The Lord Jesus Christ in Revelation chapter 3 
speaks of this exaltation of those believers who remain faithful. Revelation 3, verse 21, the Lord says, To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my Father in his throne. So the manifestation of the sons of God is nothing less than actually sharing the throne of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what we are earnestly waiting for. The earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. Now we're told in verse 20, for the creature was made subject to vanity. The creature was made subject to vanity. The believer in Christ, whilst living upon this earth, remains a mere creature. He is subject to vanity. The Greek word rendered vanity means an inward perverseness and depravity. Even the believer still has to contend with the flesh. Now before his conversion, he was controlled by a heart whose natural inclination was to sin. Before his conversion, the believer was failing to live according to the purpose for which he had been created. In that sense, he was very much subject to vanity or to futility. And so the word creature here has a particular application to human beings who are not saved because they continue to be subject to vanity. They are the victims, it's their own fault, but they are the victims of an absolute futility. What, what is the purpose of the non-believer's existence? 70 or 80 years of pursuing self-fulfillment and possibly miserably failing in that, and then nothing. What a miserable philosophy atheism is. The unbeliever is spiritually dead and on his way to an eternal death. The creature was made subject to vanity. This is the doctrine of the fall. And it's a doctrine we have to preach today because we live in a world which thinks that science can create a perfect world. But no, only God can create a perfect world and that's not this world, it's the future glory. So we read in verse 20, the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. 
God has imposed this vanity and futility upon fallen man as a consequence of man's rebellion against him. Now God did this in the hope that men would see the folly of their rebellion, repent and come to Christ. The creature was made subject to vanity by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. So God has brought futility upon human existence so that men realise their need of him in the hope that they will come to him. Now the convert to Christ has been brought to see the vanity of living without reference to his maker. Yet, even when saved, the believer remains aware of his frailty and mortality as long as he is living on this earth. The difference between the believer and non-believer is that the one who has faith in Christ has a sure and certain hope of something far better. Now notice the word willingly in verse 20. The creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly. This is further evidence that human beings are being referred to here by the term creature, not the natural and inanimate part of the creation. Trees, rocks, rivers and oceans do not possess a will. They did not rebel against their maker, man did. And as a result of that rebellion in the Garden of Eden, God has imposed upon the non-believer a vanity of existence. The creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly. Man, of course, does not willingly submit to this vanity and futility. He tries to pretend it's not there. We're going to create a better world with all our human ingenuity and all our science. We're going to create a world where all the nations come together and there are no wars. See, that's the arrogance of man who does not understand the doctrine of the fall. We can make a better world. Science can make a better world. It's idolatry. And it's a lie. We're not against science as Christians. The founders of modern science believed in the creator God. Their faith spurred on their scientific endeavours. But science is not our God. We live in a fallen world and it's going to remain a futile, vain world. And the only solution to that 
is the glory to come. You see, constantly all around us, this is what the politicians are doing, they're trying to create a better world, leaving God out of the picture altogether. They're trying to create better human beings by ignoring God. And you can't do that. You can increase increase public expenditure on health and education, but you are still left with sinful human beings. You can build every person in the country a lovely home to live in, but you're still left with sinful human beings. Only the gospel can change the heart of man. You see, the non-believer does not recognise that he is frail and mortal and subject to the curse of God. That is why there is disease in the world. But the non-believer refuses to admit this. He refuses to see that God has subjected him to vanity, to weakness, to disease and to death. Now the Lord has done this with a gracious motive. It is in the hope that man will come to realise the futility of living without reference to his maker. Now, like those who are not saved, the born-again believer continues after conversion to live in a human body. And so, even though we are sons of God, we are redeemed, we are still subject to frailty, to sickness and to mortality. And so in that sense, we too remain subject to vanity, as verse 20 says. However, the difference with the born-again believer is that he has this wonderful hope of being released from all those impediments which are due to the fall. And verse 21 describes that hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. A future deliverance from the consequences of the fall. Now here again in verse 21 we see how the word creature refers to a weak, fallen human being. But especially one who by grace has put his faith in the Saviour. He has this glorious future ahead of him. So this verse 21 declares fallen man's great potential. The creature, that that mere worm of a creature shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. that's, That's why the gospel is good news. 
God has subjected man to vanity, to the futility of an existence without spiritual life, and to a miserable slavery to sin. But he has done so all in the hope that the unbeliever will come to see the utter folly of his rebellion and will flee to Christ to be released. The creature who believes in Christ will no longer be subject to vanity. But he will be delivered into a liberty where the results of the fall are completely eliminated. Now the process has begun even here on this earth. But it will reach its climax and perfection when the believer enters into the eternal presence of Christ. Then will he fully experience the glorious liberty of the children of God. No longer impeded by the world, the flesh and the devil. No longer bound by frailty, sickness and mortality. And then in verse 22, Paul says, For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. Now, as we have already stated, the Greek word translated creation there is the same one which is translated creature in the previous three verses. So the phrase, the whole creation, as in those previous verses, means all creatures of men, mankind in general, with particular reference to non-believers, because they are the bulk of mankind. And uh, so accordingly, and this is very interesting, the margin in our authorised versions uh, gives the alternative rendering of every creature for the whole creation. So the focus is on all human beings, not on the natural world of land, sea, animals and plants. Now we're told here that every creature of men is groaning and travailing in pain. That is a description of the human condition generally. All are travailing in pain. This actually refers to birth pains. So it is pain which will hopefully lead to new life. That is God's design in the pain. But sadly, the majority of men are still born. The pain does not lead to new life. They resist the work of the Spirit on their hearts, whereby they might receive that new life. They continue instead in their sin. The non-Christian is like a sick, dying man who refuses to see the doctor. Every unbeliever knows deep down 
that he has done wrong in this life. He knows, if he is honest, that human beings are very imperfect. He knows that there is much about life which he simply does not understand. He knows that he lives in a decaying body. He knows that he himself will one day die. He knows all about the vanity of a fallen world, but he will not face up to it and do something about it. He knows that he has no fundamental answer to the question, why am I here? That's a good question to ask the atheist in the high street. Why are you here? Okay, you confidently reject God. So what do you explain to be the purpose of existence? What's, what's your answer? And yeah, the atheist loves to accuse God of allowing so much suffering in the world. Okay, let's ask the atheist, well, what's your expl- explanation for suffering? What's your explanation for it? The reality is that the human condition is a miserable condition. Until a man humbles himself and comes to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. All people are, we are told here, subject to vanity. And the gospel is the only answer. Paul continues in verse 23 here. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, to wit, the redemption of our body. So Paul contrasts in verse 23 the great mass of mankind with those creatures those human beings who have specifically believed in Christ. Such believers also inwardly grown, but for much more positive reasons. You see, the world groans because of the fall. We groan because of the fall. But there is much that is positive in our groaning. We are longing to be rid of this corrupted world and to be with Christ. Using the analogy of the harvest here in verse 21, whereby the first fruits are a pledge of the abundance to come from the rest of the harvest, the Holy Spirit in the believer's heart is the pledge of his future blessed state, the glory of the resurrection. How do we know that we are going to heaven? We have this pledge. We have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit telling us that we are the sons of God. Now, for the time being, the Christian groans in a decaying mortal body as he longs to be clothed with an eternal resurrection body. The resurrection 
is called here in verse 23 the redemption of the body which reminds us that the believer has been purchased out of a slavery to sin. Redemption means being released from slavery. And Paul says in verse 24, For we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? We are saved by hope. That does not imply that hope is the means of saving us. That, of course, is faith. Faith in Christ's death. But we are saved by hope in the sense that the hope of the resurrection is the immediate consequence of being saved. Salvation brings us into the sphere of certain hope. Not not a vague doubting hope, certain hope. We are saved by receiving hope, the hope of resurrection. So by hope is how we now live as a saved people, earnestly waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God. Our resurrection is still future, but we have this certain hope of it which sustains us in the midst of many trials for Christ's sake. Verse 25. But if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. Now we do not currently see the heavenly glory to which we are going. We currently walk by faith and not by sight. We do, however, wait for this glory. Which brings us back to verse 19. The earnest expectation, the manifestation of the sons of God. So the message of these verses is that the believer in Christ is sustained by a glorious hope. He is sustained in the midst of trials by the prospect of the future deliverance and inheritance of the sons of God. The sons of God currently suffer, but they will be manifested to all the world and publicly vindicated in great glory. The sons of God by the indwelling spirit experience a measure of liberation even in this life. But we possess the glorious hope of complete liberation at the resurrection of the body. For the time being, we labour and we suffer in this vain and fallen world and in these frail and mortal bodies. But let us remember that the suffering of this present time is not worthy to be compared with the future glory which shall be revealed in each of us if we are trusting 
in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.